Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, this is Jennifer Pomerantz. I'm the Director of Legal Initiatives at the Yale Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. I have with me today a guest from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management, Lainey Rutko. We are very pleased to have Lainey join us today. She is uh, an expert on emergency preparedness, injury prevention, food and obesity policy, and the regulation of industries that affect public health. Welcome, Lainey. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for coming. So you are an expert in corporate responsibility and the law as it relates to corporations and public health. And I have a few questions on this topic. Um, first, what does the law say about corporations' ability to be socially responsible? Um, that's a great question. Thanks, Jennifer. Under the law, um, the people who run a corporation, its managers and directors, are required to adhere to legally binding fiduciary duties. And those duties require them to act in the best interest of the corporation and to enhance shareholder wealth. Um, it turns out, though, that within those fiduciary duties, there is room for corporations and the people running them to decide to act in ways that are perceived as being socially responsible. So for example, um, you see corporations like Starbucks engaging in campaigns uh, to promote sustainable coffee growing practices um, and to work closely with communities in the countries that they purchase coffee from. That's corporate social responsibility in action. But the reason that it makes sense for Starbucks to do that is that it's very closely tied to their bottom line. So Starbucks is working to promote sustainability within the communities that it's purchasing its product from. Um, and that's a clear example of a corporation engaging in a socially, responsibility, uh, socially responsible venture, which by law it is allowed to do. But the reason it can legally do it is because it's clearly tied to the corporation's long-term financial interests. Interesting. So they can be socially responsible while maximizing profit. There is absolutely room for corporations to pursue socially responsible activities and simultaneously be focused on the enhancement of their shareholders' wealth. So you said shareholders' wealth, and I was talking about maximizing profit. Can you explain to our audience uh, how those two relate? Absolutely. Publicly owned corporations, which are the types that, that we think of most often, those are the, the real corporate giants out there, are technically owned by the individuals who purchase their shares, or we also call that stock, and that stock is traded on uh, markets around the world like the New York Stock Exchange. When shareholders purchase stock, they enter into a legally binding relationship with the people who run the corporation, the managers and directors, and by law, they're owed a duty of good faith from the corporation's managers and directors. That duty of um, good faith, which is also called a fiduciary duty, requires corporations, managers, and directors to make decisions in the best interest of the corporation and specifically to focus on the enhancement of shareholder wealth. Thank you. So I heard recently that Pepsi fell from a higher position to number three in the Coke and Pepsi wars. Did the shareholders have any response to that? Yeah, it was an interesting thing. A few months ago, it turned out that Pepsi fell to number three in cola sales behind Coke and Diet Coke. Um, I don't know if it was the first time that it happened, but it, it was the first time that it happened in a while. And the media um, gave pretty wide coverage to the fact that Pepsi shareholders were very 
unhappy with PepsiCo. And specifically, they argued that the company was spending too much time developing and promoting healthier foods or foods that the company called better for you. And in pursuing those aims, shareholders argued that Pepsi had lost sight of the need to promote and market its flagship brand, Pepsi Cola. So it was a case of the shareholders making an argument that Pepsi was pursuing um, potentially socially responsible actions, the development of better for you or um, possibly healthier foods, to the detriment of enhancing shareholder wealth by losing sight of um, the need to keep its most profitable product, Pepsi Cola, at the top of um, the cola sales. Did Pepsi have a response about maybe long-term strategies for healthier product lines? The response that um, that was covered in the media was that the management of Pepsi said something very similar to that, that the development of the Healthy For You products was done in the long-term interest of the company, but um, sort of reading between the lines, it seemed clear that management also recognized the need to let shareholders know that it is absolutely going to more aggressively market Pepsi Cola, its, its flagship product, going forward. Wow, that's very interesting. Thank you. Um, I'd like to switch gears to a couple other issues that have to do with corporations and the law. The first, there was a case recently decided by the Supreme Court called Citizens United versus the FEC. Would you talk a little about that case and its implications for uh, corporations? I'd be happy to. So in um, early 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down this decision, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. What the Citizens United decision did was to overturn longstanding prohibitions against corporations using monies from their general treasuries to fund political advertisements in the months and weeks before elections. So now, in a post-Citizens United world, corporations are by law allowed to use unlimited monies from their treasuries to fund political ads. And if, um, if I were to put it in a food policy context, it means that Corporations can now look um, at political candidates and see who's going to favor their agenda. So let's say, for example, that um, part of their agenda is to pursue a less restrictive regulatory environment. The food industry can spend unlimited amounts of money on political advertising in favor of candidates who favor a less restrictive regulatory environment, and it can also spend unlimited amounts of money to run political ads that oppose candidates who might try to enforce um, or develop a more rigorous regulatory environment. That's quite scary for public health, which usually has less money than the corporations that might oppose their objectives. I agree with you. Um, I suspect that the Citizens United decision will have major implications for public health at both the federal and state levels. Although, since it was decided, um, we really only had one election cycle, so it's a little too soon to have um, evaluative results. Thank you. Um, and also, I was curious, um, that's... Uh, the way that corporations um, engage in the court system. I know that uh, humans can sue and be sued, and I was curious the context of that right, uh, those rights for corporations. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, so, right, as you said, of course, people can bring litigation and can be the subject of litigation. And um, the same in general is true for corporations. So they can initiate litigation and they can be the subject of lawsuits. But in recent years, it's turned out that for some industries, that's no longer the case. The example that's most important 
in a food policy context is um, the surge in things that are called either cheeseburger bills or common sense consumption laws, depending on uh, perhaps your political orientation. So at this point, 24 states have passed a version of what's called a cheeseburger bill. And what those laws do is to insulate the food industry in that state from being subject to lawsuits brought by individuals who blame um, a food manufacturer in whole or in part for their own obesity. And the reason that that kind of insulation um, from lawsuits can be troubling from a public health perspective is that, one, it prevents people who believe that they've been wronged or harmed from having their day in court. Um, It doesn't allow the court system to decide what's a frivolous lawsuit that should be thrown out and what's a lawsuit that has merit and should be allowed to move forward. In addition, if an industry can't be sued, then there's no chance for public disclosure of internal company documents. And I'm not saying that all company documents should be made publicly available. However, we saw in the 1990s after the um, tobacco litigation and the master settlement agreement with the major tobacco companies that millions of pages of previously confidential tobacco company documents were released. As a result of the information contained in those pages, public opinion was dramatically swayed against the tobacco industry once the public learned exactly how the industry had been operating and what it had known all along about the addictive properties of nicotine or the health harms that can be caused by smoking. There's the potential, perhaps, that the public could learn information from um, food industry documents that might also sway public opinion about how the industry operates. But if the food industry is immunized from being sued, then there's no chance at all for those types of documents to ever be publicly disclosed. Is this the only industry that is immune from lawsuit? So that's, that's a wonderful question. And the answer is there are three major industries in the United States that have some form of immunity from litigation. So the first one, as I said, is the food industry. And that's true in the 24 states that have passed some version of a cheeseburger bill. The federal government in 2005 passed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which largely protects the firearms industry from being sued, um, which is really a a tremendous thing from a public health perspective for an entire industry, according to federal law, to be largely immune from litigation. The final industry since the 1980s that's partially immune from litigation is the vaccine industry. So when people, when someone experiences or believes they've experienced an adverse event due to a vaccination, they're first required to go through a federally funded system And if they're unhappy with the compensation that they receive from the federal system, they're then allowed to bring a lawsuit against the vaccine industry. But by and large, most of those vaccine-related claims are resolved within the federally funded system. So it it sounds to me that the first two examples are negative for public health, whereas this last vaccine example might not be so negative. I think that's true. The first two examples, the food and gun industries, potentially are not beneficial to public health. The example with the vaccine industry, um, like you said, is very different. And in the mid-1980s, the reason that the federal government decided that it needed to provide some immunity to the vaccine industry from litigation was because the industry was afraid it would be bankrupted by lawsuits related to um, vaccine adverse events. In that case, the industry said, basically, if, if we don't receive some kind of protection from litigation, we'll be bankrupted. And the consequences of that 
are really serious for public health because we won't be able to continue producing and distributing vaccines. So the government um, acted relatively quickly to provide some kind of protection to that industry, um, really in the name of public health. And what's interesting here is that vaccines, in the case of vaccines, they can't necessarily be made safer because a portion of the population might have an adverse effect. But with food, they they could be made safer. And so here we see a really big difference between these two kinds of immunizations of lawsuits. Yes, definitely. With vaccines, there's always, um, they, they can't be made 100% safe so that no one will ever experience an adverse event from um, receiving a vaccination. With food, however, there are many ways in which food products can um, be modified or otherwise changed to become healthier, for example, um, reducing sodium content or reducing sugar content. Thank you. So one of the my final questions, uh, I just want to know um, if you, your take on can the food industry legally choose to do no harm? You've spoken a lot about that, and I thank you for that. But do you have any other concluding thoughts, and could you sum up your theory on that? Absolutely. By law, there are a few ways in which the food industry can choose to do no harm. But before I finish answering the question, I just want to say this isn't necessarily how the food industry chooses to act. I'm simply talking about what the law allows it to do. So first, um, as I mentioned earlier, the law does give the industry some discretion to pursue socially beneficial aims as long as they have some tie to the company's long-term financial prospects. Second, the food industry is by law allowed to engage in charitable giving. Now, some people see controversy in um, how much money is donated and to whom the donation goes, but still, there it is a chance for the food industry to do things that can be beneficial to the public's health by funding programs, say, that might not otherwise happen. And finally, the law allows the food industry to consider the interests of stakeholders um, beyond their own shareholders. So the interests of groups like um, suppliers or customers, employees, or even just the community in which um, the corporation sits. However, those laws are discretionary. And so what that means is that while the food industry legally can think about that and can choose to consider those interests, it doesn't have to. It's not compelled to do so. And so we hope in the future that the food industry will consider those interests more and more. That would be a wonderful thing for public health. Well, thank you very much, Lainey. Uh, we are very lucky to have you today. Uh, this was Lainey Rucco, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you very much. This is Jennifer Pomerantz from the Rudd Center. Please visit our website, yaleredcenter.org, for many resources, including a lot of information on food policy, nutrition, obesity, weight bias, and discrimination. We have a free newsletter and many other podcasts. Thank you very much.